welcome, heartfelt welcome to all the devotees who are on the path of bhakti, because you are all the light of the world, giving your heart and soul to using this valuable lifetime to reawaken pure love for Krishna within the heart. There's nothing more important. Today, I'm going to continue with a few thoughts on the topic of stepping out, which is the overarching working title of this ongoing series. And uh, the reason I came with that title was because of what Krishna says in the 15th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita when he's describing how a sentient being leaves a particular perch. The, bir the body that we're in now is sometimes, as for example, in the Shweta Shafataru Upanishad, described as a tree, and we're like little birds in the tree. And so, at a time when the tree is no longer inhabitable, the little bird flies to another tree. And Krishna says in that section of the Bhagavad Gita, utkramantam, stitam bhapi, so that the person who is situated in that tree, and you're, everyone's a person, we have eternal personhood, according to the Bhagavad Gita. Natve vaham jatunasam natvam nemi janadipa. Krishna says to Arjuna, to make it clear that when he's going onto the battlefield, all the people here, they've always existed. They exist now, they've existed in the past, and they will exist in the future, no matter what kind of body they have. It's not that we lose our identity ever, except that we can forget our identity the way somebody who gets amnesia might forget who he or she is. And has to be reminded. And sometimes there are therapies through which the facilitators bring in uh, items that the person might recognize from his or her past life or present life that he or she forgot, like a guitar. So you remember this, Mikey? How you used to play the guitar? And then... You know, certain people come in and it's like, hi, I'm Aunt Margaret. Remember me? And it says, this is your favorite food. You like macaroni and cheese. And so gradually, gradually, people say, yeah, I like macaroni. And then starts to remember, you know, my name's Mikey. My, I have an Aunt Margaret. I eat macaroni and cheese. It's not a, in, it's not a, a, a kind of inculcation, introduction of anything new. It's just bringing up what was already there and what has been forgotten. In fact, in the Bhagavatam, Krishna, or rather one of his devotees, Havi, Kavi, Havi, Havi, Kavi, Havi, Havi Ogendra says, Bayam dviti abhini bhishitasya ishad apetasya viparya yosmiti, that uh, the problem that you may be experiencing now as an eternal sentient being who essentially has no problems whatsoever in the original state of consciousness. And no static at all and no difficulty, because what's the difficulty if you're not going to die anyway? And so he says, Apitasya viparya yosmiti, you just got turned around, little jiva. 
over here. And if you turn back around again and are reminded of how to orient yourself, after all, bhakti comes from the orient. So we have to orient ourselves to our original home. And we have to know what the home is. And then if, if we're home going, that is that we're endeavoring in all the parts of our life to go to that place called home. Home means not just where the heart is, where you don't have to vacate because of some right of imminent domain. Our first temple in St. Louis was on Laclede Avenue. Maybe that wasn't the first, but it was one of the first. And uh, it was a rickety old building, but we were pretty happy there. And then the uh, <coughs> university, which is right next door, decided they'd like to have that property. And so they muscled us out by what's called the right of imminent domain. So the government can come along too. Let's just say somebody decides they want to build a wall around America, and then they can just come into your property and say, U.S., get out. This is, now there's a wall here. And so there's a sense that uh, anything can be taken from me in this world, which is true, because it's not my home. Home is a place that uh, we can stay permanently. And so this uh, stitam situation within the body is very temporary. And uh, when the situation becomes untenable, then utkramantam. So ut means out. Krama is a stepping. We step out. And uh, where'd you go, little jiva? Obviously, you're not there anymore, and everyone cries because you were here a minute ago, now you're gone. It's a very confounding situation when somebody we're used to being around and we have a relationship suddenly just isn't there. Has that ever happened with any of you? Somebody you had a relationship with it, and then suddenly they're gone. Well, Krishna says, they just stepped out. The person you were relating to was not his or her body, but it was actually the sentient being within. And uh, as the... Uh, as Yamaraj points out in the context in the Bhagavatam of the story of uh, Suyagya, the king who died on the battlefield and his queens were lamenting his, his demise and saying, he's gone, he's gone. Yamaraj, in the form of a five-year-old five -year boy, came there and said, what do you mean he's gone? He's right there. Don't you see? And they said, no, he's gone. And he said, no, same hands, same legs, same nose, everything same. So how can you say, possibly say he's gone? And they were stunned. And then he said, you didn't ever see him. That's the problem. You never actually saw your husband. You were relating to the spirit, but you were taking him as, as his body. So when he stepped out, you got all confused. And you thought, this is the king. But it wasn't the king ever. He was only temporarily residing in that tree but he flew onwards. So uh, stepping out refers to the death process, and it certainly gives it a, more of a realistic context, doesn't it? Because if you just say, he died, and everyone's like, what happened? So demystif demystifying the process of death is something that Krishna does throughout the Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam. It's the, the most dreaded of events in the life of a sentient being who identifies with the body and thinks that 
the, the end is nigh. Om Ajnana Timirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshurun Militam Nina Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Jaya Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Advaita Gadadhara Shivasari Gora Bhakta Brinda Nitai Namine Jai Namirhate Sharamulye Namti te chere nitai namine che namirhate sharamulye nam te chere hare krishna hare krishna 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 hare 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 rama hare rama 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 Hare, Hare. We'll take three reflections related to the introduction of the song Jai Radha Madhava or the preamble to today's talk called Stepping Out. Yes, Prabhu. Sri Antariksha is one of the brothers of have Yogendra and Kavi and Prabhuda and Pipalayana, Avirhotra, Chamasa, Drumala, and Karbhajana. Hare Krishna Guru uh, I like the point uh, you were saying that home is a place where we can stay permanently and uh, uh, it's not just where our heart is but where we are not forced to vacate. Right. Everyone's looking for home. Nobody liked it when Apple moved their home button off the screen. It's like, where the heck is my home button? Everyone wants that place where, like, I know I can start over right here. <laughs> Everything becomes doable when we're home. Work with me, people. Yes. I, I like the point about how you um, ended the Japa circle with uh, you know, count your blessings. You know, I, I really like that. Uh, many times we just take things for granted, and uh, <clears throat> we don't really um, understand, you know, uh, the gifts that uh, that's uh, being given into our lives. So I like that phrase. You know in your head, what did he say? So soft-spoken, I couldn't understand. Shambhalangi will translate for me. No, he said, you know, remember uh, when we ended the Japa circle, you mentioned you were going on the flight and you told the next, like the couple that I'm counting my blessings. Yeah. So that's what he liked very much, that we don't, you know, we take it for granted that, you know, so many blessings are there in our lives and we miss that. So that's what he commented on. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, I'm relating these points um, with a recently, just a couple of days ago, one of the Russian devotees left the body in LA, a generous Prabhu, and all the devotees were like, you like friends, and uh, he had so many uh, plans, like projects just recently started, and we were 
<laughs> in the beginning, we were shocked, but then, like, because so, so young and the family, but then um, when we started, like, remembering what he was doing, like, for the whole, like, Russian-speaking society here, and um, uh, then, like, some kind of joy, like, and, like, we were happy for him because he was doing this um, uh, service all his life, and when he was leaving the body uh, in Jyotim Lusai Maharaj, he was uh, chanting on the phone for him. Uh, so, like, how glorious like can be um, this last minutes leaving this body, and like this happiness inside. Everybody we were sharing yesterday that we we feel like that happiness for him that he will go like <laughs> close to Krishna, and like we're asking him to pray for us now. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, one of the ways in which, uh, well, one of the ways in which the Bhaktivinoda Thakur mentions the departure of a Vaishnav is Vaishnavs die to live and living try to spread the holy name around. He reasons, he reasons ill who tells that Vaishnavs die. For Vaishnavs die to live and living try to spread the holy name around. So there is, there is that awareness when devotees leave and it's a, It's a dichotomy because on one side we feel that well, we're missing the devotee so much, and on the other side we're happy for them to have moved on with their service in some other place and have had, had a successful uh, practice throughout their life. Thank you. Hare Krishna, Guru Maharaj. Hare Krishna, Guru Maharaj. go ahead. Please accept my humble obeisances, um, Prabhupada. I like the point when you say the, we are just stepping out of our body. So because I, I'm very sensitive to death, especially family members or friends or any anyone, it, it's shocking and I'm also scared. So I like that point, stepping out of uh, body. So we are just for a second, we are just stepping out and getting new body. Thank you so much. Yeah, and we actually do that when we sleep as well. Only we keep the car idling and jump back in when we wake back up again, same body or coma for that matter. And sometimes people have more distance when they go into a coma. They're able to move around and objectify the body. And then when it becomes inhabitable again, they come back in and then they have remembrance of that experience thanks donavari thank you so much one uh, one time um, someone mentioned in the temple uh, who was giving class that uh, whenever uh, his friend couldn't listen he used to say prabhu can you step out of the body for a second i would i want to talk to you like that so. thank you sukeshri go ahead <laughs> Hare krishna prabhu I was just thinking about, um, you know, if, uh, I mean, I've watched this uh, in some probably long time movie where people, the the owner of the house comes and he just checks out everybody saying that, um, you know, just have to be out of the house now. Um, I was comparing that with somebody who actually has spent all his life earning good money and want to move into a new house and is happy moving into the new house. So just trying to think of the analogy that um, for people who are not ready to leave the body, they have not, they're not prepared. It's It's a shock for them. Um, but um, a, a person who is, uh, you were just mentioning about one devotee last week, um, it's a joy, uh, actually, to leave the body for people who are really ready 
they know they're actually they ha it, it, it's actually so much um, like kind of an achievement that I've been working on this examination for a long time and I have uh, the exam coming in and since I'm totally prepared um, so there's no fear at all so we just with Srila Prabhupada's mercy I was just thinking that we have this uh, I have this choice to make to make myself so perfect that when death comes I, I would not be fearful at all I was just remembering Yes, and we'll talk about that a little bit today, uh, preparation and what we can do on a regular daily basis to be prepared. Okay, Bali Prabhu for the close. Hare Krishna, I think today, very nice that you sang this song because today Hiranyaksha's death anniversary and, and Lord Bharadev's appearance. So you do the timing singing, perfect singing of Dasavatar Sutra. So it was likely on this suspicious occasion. That was very nice. Thank you. For Varaha Akadashi. Varaha uh, Dwadashi. Varaha Dwadashi, yeah. Today is Varaha Dwadashi, appearance of Shri Varaha Dev. And just uh, to remember Varaha Dev on this day of his appearance day, he's one of the incarnations of Krishna. So the song we sang earlier that Bali Prabhu is referring to is called the Dash Avatar Stotram. So Dash means ten, and then there's these uh, ten. There, the incarnations of Krishna are known to be unlimited, like the waves on the ocean. However, the author of this song, Jayadev Goswami, who was a, a great songwriter, Vaishnav, Vaishnav songwriter, mentions a ten of the main avatars of Krishna who appear, and in it there's the Varaha. Varaha is the name of Krishna who appeared in the form of an animal. And that was what kind of animal? A pig. <laughs> and what were the circumstances? Brahma, who is the secondary creator of the universe, can't make this stuff up, was in anxiety because he was, <laughs> he was uh, responsible for a lot of things. When you take responsibility, then people come to you all the time. It's like, hey, we need $30,000. You know, where are you going to get it? And then uh, you got to figure it out all of a sudden. And it's, it's your problem. You take it on your head. So Brahma is this very responsible living entity. And he's trying to figure out what to do about a really dire situation in his management of the, of the universe. And while he's in complete anxiety and meditating on the solution, then there's something comes out of his nose and starts flying around and expands and gets larger and larger. And it's Krishna's incarnation as Varahadev, who saves the day and solves the problem, which was getting rid of this person named Hiranyaka, Goldeneye, who was, uh, sounds like James Bond story. Who was, who was terrorizing the universe. And he, he has a dramatic fight, like a kung fu fight with Hiranyaka, and then comes out with the first in the universe, uh, karate chop, hits him here, and kills him with one shot. After some, you know, dramatic cage fighting, MMA style. And, of course, they had weapons, but... So, the... There's a couple lessons I always take from this story is that if we take responsibility, don't fret because, well, you can fret and you will, but there's a way in which at some point 
if you're sincere and you, and you pray to Krishna for help, then he'll come in, maybe not from your nose, but from somewhere you weren't expecting. Like some, something will come in that will say, oh, I, I hadn't thought of that, I didn't think it was possible, and I've seen it happen so many times. What, not just with problems, but also with the goals we're trying to reach. We may think it's impossible to get from here to here, but with Krishna's help, uh, we can get there. And consider also how Krishna expands. That is, he gets larger and larger in our life. Varadev started as a tiny little, almost like a insect, and then became like a bird, and they got bigger and bigger in the universe. And same thing with Matsya, same thing with Vaman, who comes as a, a small child, and then he grows at the size of the universe. Uh, so Krishna grows in our life. We just have to make space for him, and he'll grow, and he'll he brings all the all the facility that we need. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, if you just put it in my hands, meditate on me, then I'll carry what you lack and preserve what you have. And that's practically all we can do, ultimately. We do our best to troubleshoot every situation, but we have to fully depend on Krishna, ultimately, because we're not independent. Thank you for the reflections, everybody. And now I would like to present before you Shukadev Goswami's brief instructions on death. This is from the 12th canto, 5th chapter, verses 1 through 13, if I may. Could I have a 12th canto? This is one of the shortest chapters I know. I know I said that last time when we had a 17th verse in the 11th canto, but I take it back. This is 11 verses, one chapter. So if you want to chant a chapter of Bhagavatam every day and you don't have a lot of time, here's your chapter, 11 verses. Shukadeva Goswami's final instructions to Maharaj Prikshit. Prikshit Maharaj had been cursed by Shringi, who was the son of a... He was a teenager, and his um, father was a really powerful sage, and Shringi had some mystic power also, so when he uttered a curse against the king, it was going to happen. And he said, the king will live for seven days, and then he'll be bit by a snake bird, and he'll die. So Prikshit Maharaj, setting an example for everybody, said, I have seven days to live, let me prepare myself for the final moment when I leave this body. And there were quite a few people who came to interview for the job of instructing him, but only one succeeded out of thousands, and that was Shukadev Goswami. And he was unanimously accepted as the one most qualified to speak on the subject. Partly, it was his stature. He didn't wear clothes, because he had already died to the world wasn't so concerned with current styles. And he was also learned. He had heard from his father. In fact, from the very time that he was born, he left home. Didn't wait till high school or any other juncture. He just got out of the womb and left. So Shukadev Goswami is known as one who's died to the world already. So who better to speak about death? And here are 
The 12th canto is the last canto of the Bhagavatam out of 18,000 verses. So this is getting near the end. And he gives his final instructions to Maharaj Prikshit about death. You want to hear him? Okay. Text number one. Shukadeva Goswami said, This Srimad Bhagavatam has elaborately described in various narrations the supreme soul of all that be, the personality of Godhead Hari, from whose satisfaction, from whose satisfaction Brahma is born and from whose anger Rudra takes birth. Is this the right chapter? Yes. Has eleven verses, right? No? Yes. Thirteen, sorry. O king, number two, give up the animalistic mentality of thinking I am going to die. Unlike the body, you have not taken birth. There was not a time in the past when you did not exist, and you are not about to be destroyed. Three, you will not take birth again in the form of your sons and grandsons, like a sprout taking birth from a seed and then generating a new seed. Rather, you are entirely distinct from the material body and its paraphernalia, in the same way that fire is distinct from its fuel. Four, in a dream one can see his own head being cut off and thus understand that his actual self is standing apart from the dream experience. Similarly, while awake, one can see that his body is a product of the five material elements. Therefore, it is to be understood that the actual self, the soul, is distinct from the body. It observes and is unborn and immortal. Five, when a pot is broken, the portion of sky within the pot remains as the element sky, just as before. In the same way, when the gross and subtle bodies die, the living entity within resumes his spiritual identity. Six, there's going to be a quiz on this in just a minute, so please listen carefully. The material bodies, qualities, and activities of the spirit soul are created by the material mind. That mind is itself created by the illusory potency of the Supreme Lord, and thus the soul assumes material existence. Seven, a lamp functions as such only by the combination of its fuel, vessel, wick, and fire. Similarly, material life based on the soul's identification with the body is developed and destroyed by the workings of material goodness, passion, and ignorance, which are the constituent elements of the body. Eight, the soul within the body is self-luminous and is separate from the visible gross body and invisible subtle body. It remains as the fixed basis of changing bodily existence, just as the ethereal sky is the unchanging background of material transformation. Therefore, the soul is endless and without material comparison. Nine, my dear king, by constantly meditating upon the Supreme Lord Vasudev and by applying clear and logical intelligence, you should carefully consider your true self and how it is situated within the material body. Ten, the snake bird Takshaka, sent by the curse of the Brahmana, will not burn your true self. The agents of death will never burn such a master of the self as you, for you have already conquered all dangers on your path back to Godhead. 11 and 12. You should consider, I am non-different from the absolute truth, the supreme abode, and that absolute truth, the supreme destination, is non-different from me. 
Thus, resigning yourself to the Supreme Soul, who is free from all material misidentifications, you will not even notice the snakebird Takshika when he approaches with his poison-filled fangs and bites your foot. Nor will you see your, your dying body or the material world around you, because you will have realized yourself to be separate from them. 13. Beloved King Parikshit, I have narrated to you the topics you originally inquired about, the pastimes of Lord Hari, the supreme soul of the universe. Now what more do you wish to hear? So take a moment um, with either one other person or two other people that you're near, and just a conference to um, hear what uh, main point you took away from this chapter. Okay, maybe you could report what anybody in your group said. Any highlight that uh, caused you to say, wow, I never thought of that before. Apar Garungi? Hare Krishna Gurumat. So, uh, there were many points which we liked, but there's one burning question which came in our discussion, which is that we hear this thing that we are different from this body again and again, right from the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita. But how does one really come to that realization that what is not the body and the spirit soul? You said you, we hear about it from the... We hear it again and again, like in different chapters of Bhagavad Gita, in different scriptures, in, in many spiritual discussions, this topic comes up that we are not this body, we are the spirit soul. But what brings the change when a person is actually able to realize it and live on that platform of the realization that we are not this body, but the spirit soul? That's a question. That's a question. That arose within your group. I see. Both of us. Well, uh, in the 13th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna describes how a soul can develop what he calls the vision of eternity. That's, that's how it's translated. And it, it, Prabhupada talks about this in his commentary on, in the second uh, canto of Bhagavatam, where he describes how if one's, even an ordinary person, is introspective, and starts to analyze by taking inventory uh, what he has, including the body, and seeing that I have a leg, I have a hand, and there are organs running and so forth, that it's not such a stretch, actually. It's not that one has to do something artificial to realize it because we actually aren't our bodies. You just have to notice it. So in in one sense, there's... A um, suggestion in the Bhagavatam that we take take the trouble to actually notice that we're not our bodies, and to 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 actually th- think in those terms to objectify it. For instance, Shukadev Goswami says that notice that you don't say "I hand," you say "my my hand," not "I hand," and that we could see that with the things around us and then just bring it into the concept of of your body. So that's one of the points that we can actually see for ourselves if we're careful to look and notice it. And then there's a natural way in which when one becomes situated in self-realization, as Krishna mentions in 
The fifth chapter of the Gita, Naiva Kinshit Karomiti Yukto Manyeta Tatvavit, goes on for a long way after that. That the from the vision of eternity, that is above the maelstrom, which is like a whirlpool of the mind, one becomes clearer in the mode of goodness when the mind becomes purified. You can actually see the difference between matter and spirit. As a, the Bhagavatam, first canto, second chapter says that uh, from the mode of sattva, sattvam yad brahmadarshanam, from sattva guna, you actually have a clarity, the clarity to see the difference between yourself and your body. Whereas in passion and ignorance, it's very difficult to see that because of the state of the mind. So the purification that takes place by practicing bhakti yoga will afford us that vision. And we can also take the trouble to view it for ourselves. Although even doing that may be difficult if we're agitated by the lower modes of nature because who has time? I don't have any time. Like how much time do you have? 24 hours? Well, can you just carve out five minutes? No, not right now. That's, that's uh, Rajogun, passion. Just don't have any time. So the, from, from the neophyte and, and to the person who's highly advanced, as we heard that Shukadev Goswami told Parikshit, because you're situated in transcendence, you won't even notice it. And Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur says <laughs> about the death of a highly advanced Vaishnav. He said, it's like you dropped your chudder. You know, chudder is like a, a lot of people wear just a piece of cloth uh, as a jacket. So I'm walking along and then somebody said, hey, you dropped your chudder. I didn't feel it. And so he said, <laughs> for a very advanced soul, the dropping of the body is like that. It's like, hey, by the way, oh yeah, that? Because we already, for those who grow in Krishna consciousness, they're already, they already have dual citizenship. They may be in the body, but they've extended themselves to the spiritual world in their consciousness. So they're already, they've already taken up residence there. And if somebody says, hey, you died, it's like, oh, that old thing? I gave that up a long time ago. I used it for a while, but it's like I already had some other place to go. Okay, a couple more. Yes. Gurmaj, I wanted to add to that. Um, like she was saying many times, um, there are moments in our day or in our life where we can experience that feeling that we are not this body. But still it's like you're underwater all the time. You're churning, you're struggling, but you don't break free. I was reading Srila Prabhupada uh, two days ago for, to present something, and the Prabhupada was saying, you need to chant. Chanting cleanses you. Cleansing allows you to break free from maya. I've been reading this for years and years. It never made any sense to me. And I, I realized that, you know, it's the difference between being shackled underwater and the shackle breaking free and you come out for air. And the, and the difference is enormous because those moments of clarity bring so much calm. And like you said, you're able to think in a different level altogether. So I, was just, I just wanted to share that because I have always wondered, what is this chanting of the holy name? And you're stressing it so much, so much. 
and we struggle to do it and we just follow through because you say so. But the fact that it's the only way to clean and from cleaning the shackle breaks is something I understood only two days ago. So thank you so much, Guru Maharaj. Yeah, thank you for your observation. If all else fails, chant Hare Krishna. And all else will fail ultimately. And it, we are rather helpless to come to some solid realization. But if we take shelter of the chanting process and know what it is, then Vasudeva Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Priyojita Janiyashavairagyam Gyanam Chayyarahaitukam. There's a natural way in which we become detached, just like if you put coconut in the sun. It'll dry out after time, and then it separates from its shell quite naturally. Yes? Um, we were discussing how um, the fear of death stems from having a false perception that we're the body and not the soul. And um, in my literature class, we've been talking about a theory called the mirror stage, where um, an infant first looks at themselves um, in a mirror, and they falsely identify themselves as whatever they see in the mirror, and that's not actually the true representation of themselves, but it's just a signifier. So I was relating that to what we were discussing. Interesting. I think birds do that too. <laughs> they look in like, you looking at me? And, <laughs> and boom, <laughs> hey, stop that. Like, you stop that. <laughs> nice. Okay. I just want to mention, since you brought the topic up, that there is a, a covering. Some of them say, why are there coverings? Because we can't f feel free to enjoy, try to enjoy the material world unless we, the illusion is complete. If someone, you're doing some kind of, watching a movie or a game or something like that, a digital game, I guess that's all there is nowadays and somebody leaves the door open so the light's coming in, and you can see what's going on in the other room, your, your virtual absorption becomes ruined. So there's a way in which Krishna accommodates those who wish to ignore, and therefore ignorance is a process that he facilitates. And in the Bhagavatam, I'll just re enter this into evidence. Since Vrindara... Near disaster, Vrindaranya brought it up at uh, Bhagavatam three twenty eighteen. This may astound you. You may never be the same when you hear this. So, if you'd like to keep the status quo, you can take a little break or cover your ears for this part. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 3.20.18. So this appears in the conversation between Maitreya and Vidura. And he's, he, Maitreya, is describing Brahma, the empowered entity. It's a post, Brahma, but somebody who's highly empowered gets that post and then is given the task of creating the subtle and gross Recreating, rather, the codes are already there, but there's a way that the material world gets recreated. Uh, when did it start? It never started. It's always been going on. It's being created and recreated uh, perpetually, eternally. It's not that it starts at some time. It just uh, reappears and then goes 
to, to sleep for a while in the body of Mahavishnu. So when he comes out, the, the uh, like genetic codes are already there the, in the form of mantras. And Brahma knows all the mantras. He's a highly qualified engineer uh, developer. And so he, he knows the mantras. He knows how to use the software of the universe. And he'll utter the codes. And then the things manifest, and he brings it all back into, into its original state as it was before. So it's it's already thought out, as you might have noticed. Everything's quite well organized. So this verse says, Maitreya says, first of all, Brahma created from his shadow the coverings of ignorance of the conditioned souls. They are five in number and are called Tamisra, Unda Tamisra, Tamas, Moha and Mahamoha. You don't want Mahamoha, right? Purport. <laughs> the conditioned souls or living entities who come to the material world to enjoy sense gratification are covered in the beginning by five different conditions. The first condition is a covering of Tamishra, or anger. Constitutionally, each and every living entity has minute independence. It is misuse of that minute independence for the conditioned soul to think that he can enjoy like the Supreme Lord, or to think, why shall I not be a free enjoyer like the Supreme Lord? This forgetfulness of his constitutional position is due to anger or envy. The living entity, being eternally a part and parcel servitor of the Supreme Lord, can never, by constitution, be an equal enjoyer with the Lord. When he forgets this, however, and tries to be one with him, his condition is called tamishra. Tamisra. Even in the field of spiritual realization, this tamisra mentality of the living entity is hard to overcome. In trying to get out of the entanglement of material life, there are many who want to be one with the Supreme. Even in their transcendental activities, this lower grade mentality of tamisra continues. Andha tamisra involves considering death to be the ultimate end. The atheists generally think that the body is the self and that everything is therefore ended with the end of the body. Thus, they want to enjoy material life as far as possible during the existence of the body. Their theory is, as long as you live, you should live prosperously. Never mind whether you commit all kinds of so-called sins. You must eat sumptuously, beg, borrow, and steal. And if you think that by stealing and borrowing you are being entangled, in sinful activities for which you will have to pay, then just forget that misconception because after death everything is finished. No one is responsible for anything he does during his life. This, atheist, this atheistic conception of life is killing human civilization for it is without knowledge of the continuation of eternal life. This andatamisra ignorance is due to tamas, the condition of not knowing anything about the spirit soul is called tamas. This material world is also generally called tamas because 99% of its living entities are ignorant of their identity as soul. Almost everyone is thinking that he is this body. He has no information of the spirit soul. Guided by this misconception, one always thinks, this is my body and anything in relationship with this body is mine. For such misguided living entities, sex life is the background of material existence. Actually, the conditioned souls in ignorance in this material world 
are simply guided by sex life, and as soon as they get the opportunity for sex life, they become attached to so-called home, motherland, children, wealth, and opulence. As these attachments increase, moha, or the illusion of the bodily concept of life, also increases. Thus, the idea that I am this body and everything belonging to this body is mine also increases. And as the whole world is put into moha, sectarian societies, families, and national nationalities are created, and they fight with one another. Maha moha means to be mad after material enjoyment. Especially in the age of Kali, everyone is overwhelmed by the madness to accumulate paraphernalia for material enjoyment. These definitions are very nicely given in the Vishnu Purana, and then it uh, quotes two verses from the Vishnu Purana. So uh, <laughs> Brahma actually introduces these um, coverings, and one of them, as you notice there, Anda Tamisra, is this kind of uh, influence in which one ignorantly thinks that I am, uh, I am of the body, and when, I, when death comes, that's finished. Everything's finished. And so there's a, a, a sense of fearing my non-existence. And that's counterintuitive to the nature of the sentient being because as sentient beings, we're always in the same state. We're, we eternally exist. So there's no change to that. You may notice as you age that there's a sense that you're still young because you are. But if you identify the body and think, oh, yeah, now I'm this age or that age, then you've... Uh, come under the influence of this veil of ig ignorance to identify with the body. Okay, let's take a couple more, any of the realizations that you had when you broke into groups and discussed. Two more only. They're prizes. Yes, Prabhu. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Um, when I was talking about the Andhata Misra, I was thinking that in, in the business world today and even in the, in the, in the politics and administration, um, how dangerous that feeling is because they think that anything they can do and there, there are no sins, they can get away with it. Um, so, and, and when they do that, it is not just a problem for them, it is the problem for the whole nation or whatever institution, you know, they are guiding. So it is so important that the people at that level, at least they should not have that, you know, feeling of Andhatamisra. Yes, and this is an important viewpoint that we're on a continuum. This... Um, Prabhupada gives in a, a story, an anecdote. Thank you very much. Great to see you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. And that is that it was an uh, instance he was recounting about a young man whose father died and his, um, his father had some debts. So the son went around to pay off the, the various debts that he had and that his father had. And there was uh, somebody 
who had uh, disputed it and said, actually, he, you know, he didn't know that to me. But the boy was following the duty of the, uh, his, his duty by f going down the list, paying back everybody, and he had clear records. Now, you know, somebody might say, like, okay, uh, this person doesn't remember that my f father owed him something, so I'll just skip that one and we'll keep the balance. But Prabhupada was pointing out that the, the boy was adamant. No, no, you have to take it. And uh, we've seen that also, uh, although not frequently, with uh, vendors. Someone will accidentally get paid too much, very infrequently. And then <laughs> we'll come back, say, no, no, take it back. I mean, somebody told me about that. I haven't seen it myself. Uh, because they have a sense that everything balances out. I can't steal from somebody and then not uh, pay for it later. Uh, and it, even in the context, as we've discussed before, about taking credit for something that you didn't do, if you do that on the continuum and there's a, a balancing out of that, then you'll get blamed for something you didn't do also. So in the sense of the continuum, that I'm experiencing various things in this life because of the balancing effect of material nature. Everything comes back to roost. And, and so someone who's aware of the continuum of, of various lives looks at the world and interacts with people in a very different way than somebody who thinks, as Prabhupada was pointing out, a person has the context of this is the only body, so it really doesn't matter as long as I can get away with it. Well, the Bhagavatam says you don't get away with anything. Everything's being witnessed, which is, if you think about it, I mean, you could think about it as like, that's a little embarrassing maybe because the things I'm thinking or maybe what I'm doing when I think nobody else is watching, but actually it is all being witnessed. But that's actually a relief uh, to those who come to clear consciousness because as somebody was pointing out the other day, I think it was um, Gwansa, on our bhakti community. It was a really astute observation. She was talking about a way that uh, she had given up a particular habit, and she said she knew her conscience was telling her the whole time, it's just that she didn't want to listen for a long time until she started practicing Krishna consciousness, and then she got the strength to say, like, come on, I gotta actually do this now, because I can hear my conscience more clearly and I know what the implications are. In a practical setting, and I mentioned this before, I had seen in my youth when I stayed for months at a time in South India that people, often Brahmins, were wearing a jewel around their neck with a golden chain. And I wondered, you know, first of all, should I get one? Uh, next one, where would I get such a thing with no money? And then, uh, uh, actually, I inquired about it, and some people told me that they, they wore those because if they happened to die in some place uh, and somebody was doing their last rites, they could take that. They could give, you know, they could take that from their body or they could just uh, pay them ahead of time so that they didn't leave a debt behind. And in the Bhagavatam, the... Uh, Karbhajanamuni says, Devarshi Bhutatma Nrinam Pitrinam Nakinkaro Nayam Nranicha Rajan Sravatmara Yasharanam Sharanyan Katom Kundam Parishritakartam. That everybody has a debt. 
to, uh, and then he gives a list. Deva means the very powerful administrators of the material world who are meeting out M-E-T-E-D, M-E-T-I-N-G. Meet, to meet out. Can you look it up, please? The, the various uh, resources, material nature. There's a, they're controllers, so those aren't free. You get a little window letter in your inbox that says, here's your bill. Have you ever noticed that? If you use too much water, once our gardening crew came in and they accidentally left one of the watering systems on, not a lot, so it's hard to tell, but it was enough so that the city came and left a note on our door saying, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Taking 50 baths a day. And uh, so there was, a, there was a consequence. The gardeners had to pay <laughs> over $1,000 uh, to the city because they had left the water on. And so every resource we get here is controlled by someone we owe for that. Dave Arshi, and then there's Rishis. There, there are people who actually sacrifice their lives to the benefit of others so that people can get clear knowledge. And their whole lives are dedicated to that. So we might say, well, I don't know them. I never met them. It's like, well, if you heard the stuff that they're teaching you and you're following it, then you're supposed to pay them. In fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about uh, when you uh, attend a sacrifice on your behalf, somebody like a priest does something for you, Vedic priest doing some kind of a, uh, a samskar or something, you're, you have to pay them. You have to give them something. This is called dakshina. And that, uh, that completes the sacrifice. And he says, if somebody doesn't give dakshina, then the, the, it's in the mode of ignorance, and you don't get the result. And uh, like one of my friends, is a, he does a lot of Vedic yagyas everywhere. And he doesn't uh, demand any money or say a certain amount. This is what this is going to cost. She just goes and does it. And according to the culture, people just reciprocate and give. And sometimes they don't give him anything. But he reminds them, he says, I don't care if you give a penny, but if, until you do it, the yagya is not complete. So the rishis are there doing a great yagya of expanding knowledge to society. And if we don't somehow reciprocate with them, not that we're gonna, they have a PayPal account, but there is a way in which we have to, we have to uh, reciprocate by, by giving the knowledge to other people. This is the implication of that. Devarshi, Deva, Rishi, Devarshi, Bhutatna. Then there's animals. And animals do, do so much for us. Nowadays, it's such a thankless task to be an animal, isn't it? Animals, you know, they keep us happy. You look at an animal and you go, okay, life's okay. I remember when I was studying really hard in university and I was thinking, I hate this. And I, I just wish it was over, and I don't want to write this paper, blah, blah, blah. And you see the cat out in the backyard just kind of... <laughs> you know, All right, life's not so bad. Uh, maybe I'll just think like that. Um, anyway, uh, animals do so much for us, like the cow. You know, I see people all the time lined up on Burlingame Avenue for ice cream cones. But it's not like they're th you know, saying, thank you, dear cow. And, I mean, I don't want to get into what people actually do to cows and how it's been industrialized, but it's unconscionable. And, but there's a debt for that. We're on a continuum, and you have to pay it back. 
we should live like that in gratitude and be paying back to the animals that help us out. I mean, if we get into all the ways animals help us, it'll, we'll be here all day. Uh, so then there's human beings who help us. How about your parents? They do anything for you? Like stay up all night for the first how many years? Parents? How long does that take? 16? 24? <laughs> you know, you never stop worrying about your kids, right? And doing things for them, and a lot of times thanklessly, because the kid's not thinking like, you know, how can I give back? They're thinking like, who are you? Who are you to tell me anything? <laughs> you never did anything for me. <laughs> it's like, what? This is the mood in the material world. As but and then Pitrinam. What about our forefathers? And sometimes I was thinking how wealth gets passed down through generations, and then inherit and think I'm a big rich guy. You know, it's like where'd you get it from? Well, I don't know. He said, it wasn't yours, it got passed down to you. And in so many other ways, the Bhagavatam says, we're indebted. We're in rini. Rini means you, you owe them. You're a debtor. So how do you clear the debt? The, the verse goes on, that if, if you devote yourself to Krishna, to Govinda, Mukunda, then uh, your debts are taken care of because... You're giving to the root that pays off all the other debts. That's not an excuse to say like, hey, I think I won't pay off my credit cards because I'm a devotee. You should, because <laughs> good luck with that. But uh, we should be responsible, but we should understand that uh, various transgressions that we make in this world, like just walking around, we step on bugs. You know, bugs have a life too. I mean, they have family members that are waiting for them, and they got little things they're carrying back to the, is it a hive for ants? What is it? Nest. An ant's nest, they're bringing stuff in there. And people are waiting for them, you know, when's Larry coming down here with that grain of sugar? And, the, you know, you're walking along, it's like, step, and like, you know, I gotta go watch TV, step, and you know, a little ant, little Larry is crushed. He could have been a violin player in his last life. So, you know, uh, people walk around in ignorance. They just smash everything, break it. You know, look, we want to eat some of this? Sure, why not? Yeah, there's a reason why not. It, it was somebody's body. They were using it. Uh, and you came along and unceremoniously took it from it. It doesn't matter who did it for you. You still get the reaction. So there's a, a conscious awareness that uh, we carry this debt with us from one life to the next. So conscious culture means that walk in the world without creating violence as much as possible. It's impossible to actually not create violence in the world because jivo jiva se jivanam. It's the law in the world that we live off of other living beings. They live off of us too, by the way. <laughs> Sooner or later, your body's going to be eaten by somebody. And uh, so one should consider this continuum and before leaving the body, uh, be proactive in paying off the debts, which means uh, do the best you can on the surface level to pay off all your debts and get everything in order. Like if, if you only have a short amount of time to live, what the doctor tells you is uh, oftentimes, at least in the movies, go get your, your um, paperwork in order. 
something like get your affairs in order because, and also don't buy the large tube of toothpaste because you won't be using the economy size. Um, there's uh, so this this is a um, there's a way in which uh, we we could be conscious of that. Uh, um, Prahlad Maharaj says from an early age, not that we become neurotic, but we we we're aware that we're moving in the world on a continuum. We have debts to pay, so try to pay them off before you leave the body. It's a, an important point so that you don't have to come back and pay them later. And final point, the best way to do that is to divest yourself of all that you have now. And it doesn't mean that you should move out of your house. There was a young couple who uh, helped us design our original garden. And um, they got so into natural living. They had a perfectly beautiful house, but they decided to move out of it and live in the backyard, kind of in the garden shed, and have somebody else move in. And after the other person moved in, they were in the garden shed. They had a kid, too, by the way. And then they were looking in to their house after a couple months going, boy, it'd be nice to be in there. <laughs> and the person didn't want to leave. <laughs> so be careful about artificial renunciation. It's like, uh, I'm such a nature child, I'm going to live in the garden. It's like, be careful. Uh, be, be, uh, be balanced in your approach. But um, the way I'm talking about divesting is Ishava Semidam Sarvam Yatkincha Jagatyam Jagatina Taktena Bunjita Magradakasudanam. The Sri Shapanishad says, be very clear that everything belongs to Ishwar, Krishna. It's not yours. If something's set aside as your quota, you use that, but it's paraphernalia to be used in service. Beyond that, you're getting implicated and you're going to have to pay the debt. So be careful. That's the conscious way of living. And it doesn't mean you're going to be in penury. It means you'll live in abundance, but it's just a switch in consciousness. Okay, where are we now? We're at 9, 10, and somebody had their hand up? Yes, one, two, three. Maharaj, related to the, the, the shlokas you were reading about Brahma's creation, I have a, a question. Brahma uses a part of him every time he creates. So we read that, you know, from his, uh, from his eyebrows, from his shadow, from his back, from his hand. Why does he need to use a part of him every time he's creating? It, it's a, it's a, like software. So all your senses have software behind them. It's not the nose that smells. It's the software interface where you're able to enjoy a, a certain scent. That's called tan matra. And so it's the, the, there, there are um, forces in the universe that uh, can be harnessed. That's how, as Krishna explains in the 11th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, mystic potencies are developed. That was a passive sentence. I say that's how yogis develop mystic powers. It's explained in there, if you all want to try it. So there's a, a meditational process through which you focus your attention solely on a certain element or actually the software behind the element. And by doing that and becoming absorbed in it, you connect with it and you're able to utilize it. So yogis have these various 
powers that they can exhibit. Uh, you know, even recently, when the, the British were in India, there were yogis around who could do these fantastical kind of uh, feats by being buried in a box under the ground and left there for a week and then come dug up, open the box. It was sealed, double sealed, because somebody thought somebody's cheating here because nobody could believe it, and then they come out and the yogi's there because he has harnessed a certain power in the universe through his yogic process through which he didn't have to breathe for a while. The prana was internalized. I don't know how to do it, actually. So I'm not going to get into the details. It just happens. By there, there's a technology behind it. So Brahma, he's highly empowered being, and he uses the, the software that's already there in, uh, to energize the various, um, they're like seeds. You know, you can say, well, how does a seed work? It's a miracle. How do you get a tree into a little package like that and then make it come out? You just do. I mean, seeds are, Krishna says in the Gita, Bijam Mam Sarva Bhutanam. If you want to know where I am, look at a seed. I'm in here. I'm a seed. <laughs> you want to look at power, uh, look at a seed and just uh, admire it and say, well, that's a pretty good engineering feat. Let's see anybody else do that. So Brahma th is like throwing seeds out, and the seeds come in the form of these mantras that are extended from the kind of powers that he already has invested in him. Invested? Vested. What's meat? To meet out? Not M-E-A-T. Our research department was underfunded and they didn't get a microphone. Meet out, M-E-T-E, out, is um, to give something to the people who one decides should get it or to give out or distribute something. So does it have to go without? Or can it stand alone, meet? It can stand alone. Where's the word come from? Meet is to allot, which comes from Old English meeten, to measure, ascertain the dimension or quantity of, measure out, compare, estimate the greatness of value of, from Proto-Germanic metana to measure, also of Old Saxon meten, and it comes from Germany. Yeah. Did you all know that? That it came from German? Come on, admit it. Well, now you got a new, a new word that you can explain etymologically. Okay, yes. Prabhuji, I was just thinking about uh, what Shukadeva Goswami is talking to uh, Maharaja Parikshit. Can we say in short that the most important thing is, um, it talked about the mind being the illusory energy of the Lord. So, um, and Mahamantra is also Krishna himself. So we jivas are, um, you know, just have to request Krishna while chanting that I can't control my mind. Krishna, please, you, you have to help me control it so that we can achieve success um, and go back home, back to Godhead. I mean, I was just thinking, in short, can we consider that um, a, um, a living entity's main job is to purify his mind once his mind is purified, he has nothing else to do in this place. You know, while even being in this body, once the mind is purified, he's as good as gone back to Goloka. Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, the fact is, we do have to control, purify the mind. And yes, we do have to ask Krishna to help us. The deity of the mind is Anirudha. 
And if we're serving Rishikesh, who's the master of our senses, including the mind, the form of Aniruddha, then he helps us. And we have nothing more to do. Well, that's Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, a self-realized person has no more duty in this world. But devotees think that my duty is to help others. And so there's this uh, way that <clears throat> Vishwana Chakravarti Thakur explains how when a devotee burns up completely all his or her prarabdha karma, prarabdha means the manifest karma we have now in the form of this body, then uh, if that happens, then you really don't have a body anymore. But uh, Krishna specifically and individually helps maintain it so that you can go on doing your work in devotional service because you still have uh, a few more marathons to do before you leave, right? Okay, one, two, three. Maharaj, uh, just realization. Uh, um, I think uh, there was a discussion about uh, renunciation. Renunciation. Uh, renunciation. If you hold that straight rather than talking to the side, it works. So well. renun renunciation. So um, I was uh, reminded of one incident in um, Sridhama Mayapur with Srila Prabhupada saying to some of his disciples that uh, one of the devotees came to Mayapur and then he left the association of devotees and he's chanting 64 rounds or something like that. You know, day and night he's chanting, but he's not associating with the devotees. But Srila Prabhupada warned, warned him, you know, you shouldn't do such kind of things, you know, when you are not really capable of handling such kind of renunciation. You know, one should not, uh, you know, show a artificial, you know, renunciation. And then... Behold, after a few days, uh, devotees complained to Srila Prabhupada, Prabhupada, you're right, you know, that devotee is no longer chanting, and then he's surfing in Hawaii. Hawaii? He went to Hawaii? <laughs> it's expensive in Hawaii, unless you live in the jungle. But uh, there's mosquitoes, too. I mean, anywhere you go, I used to think Hawaii was like, yeah, maybe I can enjoy here. I'd stop there on my way to India or on the way back, and then I broke my arm in Hawaii, and I saw the inside of emergency room and stuff like that, and, and I thought, nah, maybe not. <laughs> Same with Japan. First time I went to, I already told this story so many times, but you know, flying in, I was thinking, mystic land, it's so different here. And then as I was coming down, and it kind of is, because people are so socially conscious there, this sense of space. You know, like if you go to airports in America, everyone spreads out so you can't sit down. One seat's not good enough. You've got to have three for your little, you know, <laughs> operation. It's like you're sitting here, but that's mine and that's mine too, because I'm like this, and i got a bag of Cheetos over here and a... <laughs> you know, Mountain Dew on the other side, and like, erp, you know. <laughs> Whereas in Japan, everyone's, like, aware, because it's a small space over there. They're careful about who lives, who does what to whom and stuff like that. Yeah, I remember when I, I went there, and uh, I got off the plane, and we went right to the Harinam, and it had a 
computer with me and stuff and leave it in the van. You know, you're never supposed to leave your computer in the van, right? So I said, is it safe downtown? And uh, my host said, yeah, 95% safe. And the whole time I was thinking, yeah, what about that 5%? It's always looming here in the material world. 5% is going to get you somewhere. Okay, we had a couple more, and I don't even know if I answered any question or said anything. Uh, I was uh, reflecting on the 12th canto, 5th chapter, the 11th verse. In that verse, it was talking about, if we just take that verse out of context, it looks like it's saying that Parikshit Maharaj is going to become the Supreme Lord himself, because it says with how by disidentifying yourself with the body, you eventually become one with the absolute truth. Yeah. So just thinking how it's important to take things within the context, otherwise it will get a different meaning. It's always two things to consider, content and context. Those two things always go together for, for understanding. Good is a word. If I say good to somebody I love or loves me, bye. Goodbye. Good, the word good isn't, doesn't have the same meaning anymore because of its context. So everything has these two elements. And when we're looking at uh, Shastra and understanding it, we have to have context. It has to be explained within context. Otherwise, you lose the meaning. And that's the problem with cherry picking from the Veda base, which is a popular sport nowadays. It's a professional sport you can become involved in to find various passages and then expand them to be the all-in-all all and say this is everything. Okay, we have two more and then we're going to uh, <clears throat> move on to our next fun activity. Hare Krishna Maharaj, thank you for the wonderful class and um, reminding us of the uh, great responsibility um, regarding the debt we are carrying from our ancestors, rishis and our parents. So I was thinking along those lines and um, I had this, this question that um, in material realm, we talk about that, that a credit card, if I have $100 or $1,000 outstanding, I must pay that $1,000 back to the bank and get rid of that debt, right? In the spiritual realm, is there a similar proportionate way that we need to pay back the, the spiritual debt? Yeah, you have to declare bankruptcy. Spiritual, yeah, so the, in, the, in the bankruptcy courts, the laws have changed a lot over time. I don't know what they are exactly right now, but there's still bankruptcy protection. Uh, it used to be a lot easier. Probably people took advantage of it, and that's why they ch changed the laws. And probably, anyway, I won't get into the reasons. But bankruptcy means that, let's say you have a business, and you get so much debt due to circumstances or something or other that your creditors are demanding more than you have, and you can't pay it back in time. And that would make your business uh, defunct if you had to pay everything. You'd have no resources or cash flow to work with. So then you go to a bankruptcy court, and there are special judges that uh, preside over the court, and then you present your case. Like, I have a legitimate business, I have these expenses, and they're demanding them by this time, and I can't pay it. If I do pay it, I'll have to go out of business. Can you protect me? And so then the judge will say, yes, we'll give you bankruptcy protection. And there's a way that they hold at bay all the other creditors 
giving you time because you brought a reasonable plan to them and a guarantee that you're going to pay it back over time so that so that you're you're not uh, put out of business so there's a clause in the Bhagavad Gita and elsewhere I mentioned it earlier in Devarshi Bhutatma Nrinam Pitranam but Krishna says Sarva Dharman Pritija Mamekam Sharanam Braja Antung Sarva Papi Byo Mukshayishami Masucha Every little jiva has a chip in the game here in this world somewhere. It's like those little shops you see in India where they sell pan. Is it pan or pawn? Pawn? Okay. They sell pawn. I don't know how they make a living, but they have little rolls of pawn and maybe some Lay's potato chips or something like that. And uh, I guess people come along there on their motorcycle and say, you know, give me one of these. It's seven rupees or something. I have no idea. But they have this little insignificant little shop. So everyone has a little business like that in the material world thinking, I'm making my living selling pawn from this little shop, and it's really important. In universal terms, it's a paltry existence and insignificant. So Krishna gives this opportunity. He's like, you want to just close that thing and get out of business and, you know, join with like a bigger corporation, <laughs> have, some, have some stability in your life. And so he, he gives this offer, you know, just dedicate your life to my service and then I will make up for all the debts. It's bankruptcy protection at its best. And he can do it. So the fact is we have so much debt from the continuum of, of our existence in the material world, we can never pay it back. You can't work it out. So ultimately you have to put yourself before the court and say, I can't handle this. I'm being crushed by it. I think I'll just take shelter here. And then Krishna says, okay, I'll wipe out all your debts for you. Does that sound like a, a good idea? Does to me. Anyway. Yes? Om Ajnana Timirandasya Jnanan Jnana Shalakaya Chakshurun Mitam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurube Namaha Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadara Shri Vasadikaura Bhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, today I'll be presenting verse 42 from chapter 8 of Canto 1 of the Bhagavad Srimad Bhagavatam, sorry. Um, what is happening in this verse is that Queen Kunti is praying to Lord Krishna and at first she is asking him to stay back and to not go back to uh, Vrindavan, not Vrindavan, sorry, to his own kingdom which he needs to do now that the Kurukshetra war is over. However, Krishna does not stay. He tells her that he needs to go. And so instead, she starts praying to him. Tvayame nanya vishaya matir madhupate sakrit ratim udvahataddha gange vaugam udanmuti. O Lord of Madhu, as the Ganga forever flows to the sea without hindrance, let my attention be constantly drawn unto you without being diverted to anyone else. Perfection of pure devotional service is attained when all attention is diverted towards the transcendental loving service of the Lord. 
to cut off the tie of all other affections does not mean complete negation of finer elements like affection for someone else because this is not possible. A living being, whoever he may be, must have this feeling of affection for others because this is a symptom of life. The symptoms of life, such as desire, anger, hankerings, feelings of affection, etc., cannot be, cannot be annihilated. Only the objective of these emotions has to be changed. Desire cannot be negated, but in devotional service, this desire is changed so that only this desire is focused towards the service of the Lord in place of the desire for sense gratification. The so-called affection for country, society, and our family, etc., consists only of different phases of sense gratification. When we change this desire towards the satisfaction of the Lord, it is called devotional service. In the Bhagavad Gita, we see that Arjuna desired not to fight with his brothers and other relations simply to satisfy his own personal desires. But when he heard the message of Lord Sri Krishna, the Srimad Bhagavad Gita, he changed his decision and instead served the Lord. And for his doing so, he became a famous devotee of the Lord, for it is declared in all of the scriptures that Arjuna attained spiritual perfection by devotional service to the Lord and friendship. The fighting was there, the friendship was there, and all the other emotions were there, but instead, because Arjuna was directing these towards Krishna, he became a different person via this devotional service. Therefore, the prayers of Kunti also indicate the same categorical changes in activities. Srimati Kunti Devi wanted to serve the Lord without diversion, and this was her prayer. This unalloyed devotion is the ultimate goal of our life. Our attention is usually diverted to the service of something that is non-godly or not in the program of the Lord. When this program is changed into the service of the Lord, that is to say, when the senses are purified in relation with the service to the Lord, then that is when this devotional service becomes devotional. Sometimes, service to the devotee is more valuable than service to the Lord. But here, the affection of Queen Kunti Devi for the Pandvas and the Vrishnis was due to family relation. This tie of affection in terms of material relation is the relation of Maya because the relations of the body or the mind are due to the influence of the external energy. Relations of the soul, on the other hand, established in relation with the Supreme Soul, are factual relations. When Kunti Devi wanted to cut off the family relation, she meant to cut off the relation of the skin. The skin relation is the cause of material bondage, but the relation of the soul to the super soul, on the other hand, can be. But the relation of the soul to the super soul is the cause of freedom. This relation of the soul to soul can be established by medium of a relation with the super soul. Seeing in the darkness is not seeing. However, seeing by the light of the sun means to see the sun and to see everything else which was unseen in the darkness. That is the way of devotional service. So, essentially, what Queen Kunti Devi is praying for is she is praying that similar to how the Ganga River isn't stopped by anything, she wants her devotional service for Krishna to also not be stopped by anything. But she goes further. She also says that she does not want to be materially attracted to anyone, even her own family relations, including the Pandavas. This doesn't mean that she doesn't want any relations with anyone. Instead, what it actually means is that she wants to establish all of her relations, 
in terms of relationships with the super soul. She doesn't want to be related to Krishna because he is a nephew, and she does not want to be related to the Pandavas because they are her familial relations. She wants to be related to them because they are also, the Pandavas are also loving devotees of the Lord and because Sri Krishna is the Supreme Personality himself. Similar to this, this, similar to this, sorry, uh, Arjuna also, he also, when he was fighting before Kurukshetra, he never really was fighting for the Lord. He was fighting for his own ideals and for what he believed was his own dharma. However, when he came face to face with his own familiar relations and his own guru, he couldn't balance his two dharmas, the dharma of fighting for good and truth and the dharma of, you know, fighting for the guru and fighting for your brother and not against them. However, when Sri Krishna talked to him and convinced him that all of these relations that he held with his guru and with his brothers were simply material relations, that is when he relented and he decided to fight them. He didn't fight them because he wanted to, he fought them because Krishna wanted to. And this really is, our, is what should be our goal in our life. To try and take all of the material relationships that we already have and express them in terms of Krishna. If I have a brother or a sister and they are also devotees of the Lord, then I shouldn't just think of them as my brother because we have the same father or the same mother. Instead, I should think of them as another devotee of the Lord. So here, Queen Kunti Devi and, Lord, and Arjuna, these are what, uh, this is what the two of them are praying. And they're praying for pretty much the same thing, which is for all of their relationships to be established in terms of Krishna. Hare Krishna. Are there any questions? Yes, I have a question. Yes, Prabhuji. You had mentioned about Arjuna's transformation. At first, he was thinking uh, that he was doing the right thing morally, not fighting with his family members and so forth. And then you mentioned that he was convinced by Krishna that it was actually a higher duty, his dharma. And you mentioned that various people he'd be fighting against. And then you also mentioned he'd be fighting against his guru. So since guru represents Krishna, how, how would you reconcile that point? In most cases, because guru represents Krishna, it is not possible for us to fight them. But here, in Arjuna's case, he was specifically being told by the Supreme Personality of Godhead himself that he should fight with his guru. The only thing higher than the guru himself, since the guru is the representation of Krishna, the only thing higher than a representation of Krishna is Krishna himself. And here, since Krishna himself was telling him to fight, well, he could listen to that. He could obey these commands because they were being given to him by higher authority. But if the guru is only representing what Krishna says, then it's the same, right? Essentially, it is the same. So there's just a small point. I, I, I thought of distinction in this case. There might be a nuance that's important. Is Really, he was fighting against his martial guru. 
when he said guru, I mean, there's different kinds of gurus. There's a guru who might teach you dancing. Somebody else might teach you uh, cooking. <laughs> and this particular guru, Dronacharya, was his martial arts guru, right? Yes. That, uh, I was just thinking that context might be important. Even if the guru is a spiritual guru, however, Prabhuji, it is a similar comparison to a lake or a pond to the ocean. They're both made of water, and in this case, both the Prabhuji, the Guru, and Lord Krishna are made of the same essences, but the ocean is much bigger and it's much more vaster compared to a pond or a lake. Yeah, I still don't think it fits, but what would fit would be from the Srimad Bhagavatam of the story of Vaman and Bali Maharaj. Bali Maharaj's guru was Shukracharya. But because Shukracharya transgressed what Krishna said, then Bali felt justified, and he was, according to the Srimad Bhagavatam, to disobey what, what his guru said because he had contradicted Vishnu. But if you can find a place that says small pond, big pond in the Shastra, and how that's, that makes the difference. But I, I think that's just a fine point in your excellent presentation that, could, uh, that you could consider. Thank you, Prabhuji. I believe there was one more question. Um, uh, you were talking about how, you know, all these relationships should be understood um, in, in relation to the Lord, right? Like you were giving the example of my brother and sister and how I appreciate them as devotees rather than just my brother and sister. So my question is, what if I have people whom I love and care for who are not devotees, who don't want anything to do with devotees? What about them? Do I just drop them? Because my natural symptom of life is to love the people who care for me and who live around me. But if they don't connect with me spiritually, how should I understand that? Well, Mataji, you are a devotee. And according to the scriptures, anyone who has a relationship with their devotee is being, he is being, or they are being lifted up themselves. So rather than you lifting, I mean, rather than them lifting you up, in this case, since you are the devotee and you are the person being closer to Krishna, you are actually lifting them up. So if you were to get them into Krishna consciousness, that would be really beneficial to them, but even if you can't, simply being in close proximity of you, since you are a devotee, they also are getting benefits from this. So you're saying my affection for them is not mislaid? Affection that way, that way as... my affection for anybody is the same, right? Even a stranger, a friend who drinks, who goes around, I would still be connected with them, thinking I'm giving them my association, but Krishna says, pick and choose your association, right? So how do we deal with these situations where they do things I should not be around doing? And yet, I am attached to them because I'm emotionally attached to them. Do I cut the attachment? So there is a balance to be struck. You shouldn't, you, uh, you probably shouldn't have association with people who blaspheme the name of the Lord or who are devoting their lives to try and prove that Krishna is non-existent or he is wrong or something, you probably shouldn't have associations with these people. But people who are neutral or people who are slightly receptive towards the idea of Lord Krishna, with them you should establish better relations, and not better, you should establish relationships, I think.
Okay, thanks everybody. Please come take prasadam. Haribo.